Elizabeth Denevi, and this is Teaching While White, where whiteness intersects with anti-racist teaching and learning. I talked with Tu Ann Nguyen, a Vietnamese-American educator and writer in Washington, D.C. Tu recently wrote a blog for us entitled, Brand New Pandemic, Same Old White Supremacy. In it, she describes navigating the pandemic as a classroom teacher and the racial inequalities that she experienced and observed for her students and families of color. I asked why it was important for her to write about what happened. So I knew that I was leaving my job in November during when schools send out contracts to teachers. And when I knew that I was leaving, I vowed to use my voice in the same way that I've always used it to really promote um, social justice and equity. So there were so many questions and concerns from colleagues who felt like they could not speak up during the pandemic. Um, They were worried about being fired or losing health insurance or a variety of different uh, negative outcomes to them speaking up. And I just felt very aware of my privilege in knowing that I was leaving the system and could really use my years of experience and my different roles um, in the school to promote uh, and to amplify voices that weren't necessarily going to be heard. Can you talk a little bit, just in case anybody has not read your blog post, what were some of the racial inequalities uh, that you were both experiencing as a teacher of color and then sort of observing? There are the ones that were before the pandemic being, you know, one of a very small handful of Asian teachers uh, in the middle school that I taught at and uh, division-wide at my private school. And having my photo and uh, my words used in all sorts of advertising and fundraising, but not being in positions of decision-making at the school as well. And also, you know, the burden of educating the community on um, equity issues being mostly on people of color, right? Um, Having been a DEI, um, we called it EJC, Equity Justice and Community Coordinator, um, for three years and having um, the folks before me also being people of color. Those jobs were always ours to do to educate the community. So there were a lot of inequities that were before the pandemic. And then there were a lot of inequities that were exacerbated by the pandemic, uh, just because so many more decisions had to be made, right? Um, And they were always posited as emergency last minute decisions, but uh, they, you know, were, they affected us more. My friends um, and colleagues of color bringing up points about, you know, unequal health care in the United States, that if they got sick and they went to a hospital, they would not be treated the same as their white colleagues. And none of that coming into play when decisions are being made about when we had to return to school, how we were returning to school, any of those things. You wrote that we all pay a price for an unjust system. Can you say more about this? Sure. So we all know that students and families of color pay the price in an unjust system, but so does everyone else. So if I can't have all my students in my classroom, we aren't having an optimal classroom experience. If teachers of colors aren't present in schools, white students aren't getting a rich and full learning experience. And so I think especially about the fact that I had 
students of color who were never able to return in person during the pandemic and that their vital voices were missing all year. And that, right, um, is something that, yes, my students of color miss out on, but my white students also really miss out on those voices that are already so marginalized to have them be marginalized more during this incredibly difficult year felt extra unfair to me. What do you wish school leaders, in particular white leaders, would have done differently? So I'll just say that my school leaders are white leaders uh, at the school that I was at. And I wish they had done a few things differently. Most importantly, I wish they had asked marginalized communities before making decisions. So before sending out the email that tells everyone what we are doing, I wish they had uh, asked first. And when they did ask after, you know, uh, finally teachers of color got together and said, this is not fair. We weren't consulted. When we were consulted, I wish they had listened because decisions were still made knowing that we dissented with them. Um, it was the same decision that was being made. And I also wish that the leaders had put resources behind, you know, the idea, ideas that they have of equity and equality. And so one of the things that happened that I wrote about in my article is that professional development was cut down to zero at different points during the pandemic. Uh, and there was never any discussion of when that uh, professional development was going to come back. And so we spent all of our time learning how to use cameras and microphones, and we were no longer learning how to be in community with each other, to uh, change our curriculum, to improve it, to make it more equitable, to reach out to families and students of color who were suffering more than other constituents in our community. You think that professional development point can't be understated too. I, I think it's interesting that when we had to make decisions and things had to happen via the pandemic, look how quickly we could throw resources at the problem, right? Yet something that we've been dealing with forever in schools, then that's the thing that gets cut, right? Or that gets underfunded, or we, you know, we don't possibly have the time and resources for that. You know, it just shows that we can do what we want to do uh, when we want to do it. A specific example of that is private schools that I know of in the area have gotten much better at responding right away to uh, issues of inequality and injustice um, for Black folks from this area. So we right away got an email from the head of school about Black Lives Matter. And when Asian hate crimes were being perpetrated, that email did not come right away, and it did not come from the head of school. And so there wasn't enough sensitivity and you know, I would have loved to have been asked about how would it look if we sent an email out about uh, Asian hate crimes and how should we do that? Uh, but no one in my community was asked that. And so at the bare minimum, I'm asking for more communication and working with all of the constituents of color at schools. I think that's an incredibly fair request uh, and really easy to do, right? And realizing that racism is going to impact different ethnic groups differently, and we're not aware of how that's going to operate, we're going to miss things. Absolutely. So let's turn now to thinking about your white colleagues. How could they have handled the situation differently? 
Uh, were there any that were helpful to you in any way? Sure. To answer your first question about how white colleagues could have handled things differently, I have read and forwarded so many articles about toxic positivity. And I think the one thing that my white colleagues did that was really hurtful um, and just continued to make the situation worse was walk around with a lot of toxic positivity about the joy of teaching and the joy that we were all supposed to be feeling. The joy that is so much easier for folks who are not in marginalized communities to um, feel, right? Um, and that positivity that dismisses everything that I'm feeling and my colleagues of color are feeling and my students of color are feeling. And so the most helpful thing that a white colleague did, and specifically a white male colleague, right? So in the middle school teaching profession, right? Not tons of of white male uh, of male teachers, right? And so to have this person who has a lot of power because they're a man and because they're white to say in a meeting, "I'm not going to talk, but I will go with whatever my colleagues decide," was a huge deal. Uh, and he did sit back and he waited, and uh, because he realized that this decision about whether or not we come back in doesn't affect him the same way it affects me. Um, he didn't have any immunocompromised folks at home. He, you know, didn't have the worries about what it would be like for him to end up hospitalized. And so he said, whatever my majority faculty of color in this situation agree on, that's what I'm going to go with as well. And he was also willing to use his voice um, to amplify our voices. And so that's what would be most helpful uh, in those decision-making spaces. We have a number of white parents who listen to the podcast. So what would you like to say to them? I would like to ask parents, white parents who listen to the podcast, when was the last time you asked your teachers of color how they are really doing? When have you had a conversation with them about them uh, rather than just what your child needs and wants that you feel like you have bought for them through tuition? And, and why is it that we haven't had a conversation, right? And so when I decided to opt out of coming in person, I wrote an email to all the parents in my classes and said very explicitly, I am happy to have a conversation with any of you about why I'm choosing not to return in person. And here are all the ways you can talk to me. And the only people that responded to me were families of color. And so that said so much to me about which parts of the community care about me, um, are interested in my well-being. Um, and even if that interest is just to see like why I can't be serving their kid, they were the only ones who were interested in having a conversation with me. Uh, it was the only time that I felt like I wasn't just like servant the whole time um, in this community. And so I would also ask parents, when was the last time they advocated that the board of any school be more diverse? Um, and when have they worked to hold meetings together with other groups of folks in the community? So when do white families reach out to the parents of Asian students, the parents of Black students? When is their dialogue? Um, did they reach out when anti-Asian hate crimes were happening? 
Did they reach out during Black Lives Matter movements in the summer? Like when? And is that communication just once a year, right? Um, Because I think parents have this idea that, oh, I'm going to send my kids to this school that has a diverse looking population, right? And that'll solve all the problems. We have done our equity work. And that's just not true, right? They also are responsible for that work. Right. And I think it's this interesting piece where we continue to not differentiate between diversity and equity. We're actually using them as synonyms when they speak to really different needs in a community, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Because, you know, as we all know, equity means we're all getting what we need. And that's different than this school looks like lots of different looking people uh, because a lot of schools have been able to achieve that. Um, and that's not enough. Not enough. Two, it's interesting that some constituents may have different reactions to these conversations. Can you talk a little bit about what you've noticed with your students when it comes to talking about race and racism? I have noticed that my students are resilient and thoughtful and not only can handle the truth, but seek it out. And so, you know, we have to remember that things that are new to adults are the water that kids have been swimming in since birth, right? So race talk uh, is not new to them. And so when we think about fragility and white fragility in particular, I want us to think about the fact that a lot of times what I'm seeing is white parents imposing their fragility on their kids and kids don't have that same fragility. And what are we saying about what we really believe kids are capable of learning and thinking if we are deciding for them that they're not ready to talk about something uh, as intrinsic to our identities as a race. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of this fear and the discomfort, again, is that, you know, if children figure out how racism operates, guess what? They're going to dismantle it. And I almost think there's this way of keep them from knowing to a certain extent because it just keeps the system firmly in place. And I've had a number of my white students that I work with, and I work with a lot of fourth and fifth graders, they are angry when they find out about things have happened. And the number one question they often will say to me is, why didn't anybody tell me? Why didn't I know about this? This is ridiculous. Uh, so I want to um, just echo that point and really say, let's let's really be thoughtful as folks are bringing challenges around talking about these things. Like, who are we protecting? Who are we worried about? And oftentimes is it adult discomfort that really is the priority over what may be happening for kids? There were so many times in the past pandemic years that I had to say, the adults really messed up on this one, <laughs> right? Uh, and that's okay that the adults are messing up, but uh, the kids actually a lot of times, right, are braver than we are. And uh In particular, an example was when our head of school wrote a letter to the community about the way in which we were returning to school, adults who felt a great injustice about it didn't feel like they had the right to speak up. And nothing, nothing was done 
until students wrote a letter, an open letter uh, in response. And the students were the ones who had to point out how faculty of color were a marginalized community who were not consulted about these decisions. And so there is so much power, right? And, and we know, we know this from reading, you know, March and from knowing John Lewis's life and knowing the life of uh, activists um, who started really young in this country, right? That they have a lot of power. And so I'm never worried about if my students can talk about race. I am concerned and upset and weary of having to explain to parents that their kids are ready to talk about race. So in your post, too, you talk about the current challenges to critical race theory and talking about race and racism in our classrooms. What would you say to white teachers who are nervous about talking about race? I would say, first and foremost, it is okay to be nervous. I am nervous sometimes still, and I've been practicing this for over 15 years. It's not okay to be complacent. It's not okay to teach the same racist rhetoric. It's not okay to continue with internalized oppression. And so I don't want the nervousness to be the thing that seems unusual, right? I, I want the thing to, 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 to not stop people in their tracks. Um, I was at a conference recently and a white woman I didn't know very well, but who also was a teacher, came up to me and very shyly said, can you just talk to me a little bit about critical race theory and what the big deal is? I don't know if you're the right person to ask, but I thought you might know. And I so appreciated that opening. And that's, you know, in my discussion with you earlier about what I wish white colleagues and also uh, white heads of school um, and persons in power would do, it's, it's all along the lines of communication, right? So to ask for more education, more training, more professional development around race and racism. I mean, the, the incredible thing about teachers, right, is that they love to learn and they love to teach. And so why can't that be true um, about race um, and learning about the racist history of this country? So two, is there anything else that you would like our listeners to know? I would just like everyone to think about it's not enough to have made some progress. It's not enough for our schools to look a little bit more diverse. Um, and it's not okay to use the emergency of the pandemic to go backwards or to remain complacent in our understanding of race. Because as we know, the, the pandemic is working itself out in incredibly racist ways as well, right? That this is all tied to the racist history of this country. And so um, to think about the pandemic separately from race and what's happening in our schools it doesn't make sense um, with the way things are playing out in the world, right? Folks are getting sick, right? Caretakers of students are getting sick. Uh, students have relatives who are sick. Um, and this is affecting students of color and people of color, right, uh, more than it is affecting white communities. And so schools are communities. And we want to think about the ways all of this is 
tied to our our history, right, in the United States. And that's all critical race theory is. That's um, if, if you're afraid of talking about it, then what you're really afraid of talking about is United States history, right? Um, and uh, that that means you're not really interested in learning, which is what schools are about. That was To and When, a Vietnamese-American educator and writer in Washington, D.C. Be sure to check out her blog, Brand New Pandemic, Same Old White Supremacy, at teachingwhilewhite.org. Support for the podcast is provided by the Eastern Educational Resource Collaborative. For more information, go to www.easted.org. This episode was produced by Stephen Smith, and the theme music was provided by Henry Needham. I'm Elizabeth Denevi. Thanks for listening.